I guess we will go ahead and get started. There are a bunch of you on the webcast and nobody on the telephone, which is what we encouraged. Uh, so thank you for using the webcast. And This is David Swanson uh, with Roots Action, and joining us on this webcast is Matthew Ho. Say hello, Matt. Hi, David. Hello, everyone. Um, we uh, have a way for you to ask questions at any time uh, during this webcast. You can type in questions on the on the website where you are listening, and they will show up, and I'll be able to read them. So uh, ask questions, comments, input at any time uh, by typing it in. If anyone is listening by telephone, you can go to Twitter if you are able to connect with Twitter and tweet a, uh, a question to roots underscore action. That's the Roots Action Twitter account, Roots underscore Action. Just include that in your tweet uh, or put it at the beginning of your tweet, but make it a public tweet, not a private message, and it will come to us and I will get your questions and we will answer them that way. Questions for, for me or for Matt uh, or for both of us. Um, and this is being recorded, by the way, so your questions and our answers will be in an audio recording that we can uh, put online and spread around the world going forward and used to promote the upcoming webcasts slash conference calls that will be happening all the rest of this week uh, and can be found at StandUpForTruth.org. And I will uh, say more about them at the very end. Um, but let's start with Matthew Ho. And uh, Matt, if it's okay, I'll ask you some questions. And uh, if you have any for me, you can ask them after that. Um, By way of introduction, uh, Matt Ho is a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. He directed the Afghan Study Group. He was a U.S. Marine in Iraq and worked uh, for the State Department at the U.S. Embassy in both Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2009, he became the highest-ranking U.S. official to publicly resign and renounce U.S. policy in Afghanistan. Uh, In 2010, he received the Ridenour Prize for truth-telling. He is indeed a truth-teller. One question, I suppose, for you, Matt, and I'm sure you've heard it before, um, but it is relevant to this whole week of whistleblowing and how one becomes a whistleblower. Uh, why briefly did you publicly renounce the policy in Afghanistan and resign? And why 2009? Why not 2008? Why not 2007? Why not 2006? Why not 2005? I mean, it's not as if the the, the madness of this destructive policy began in 2009. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question, David. And it's something I still struggle with today, you know, all these years later, uh, five and a half years uh, after uh, resigning, uh, but also, too, just just the years since uh, I took part in both wars. Um, And it's a a, a hard thing to do, you know. I mean, it it, it was a culmination of my experiences. It was a culmination of my experiences in Iraq and in Afghanistan, as well, of course, my experiences working in Washington, D.C., uh, on the policy issues, on the issues of the war itself uh, for many years. 
And I think for me, the, the, the case was when I went to Afghanistan, uh, I thought, well, my, my expectation was we would not be escalating the war, that we would be trying to remove ourselves from that conflict just as we had tried to remove ourselves from the Iraqi conflict after so many years of just uh, of, of just horrible uh, losses, horrible waste, horrible suffering for all sides and for all peoples. And the only people that seemed to benefit from that war, of course, were either the, the, the corrupt, uh, the, the corrupt uh, Iraqis we put in power or those who created organizations like al-Qaeda or the Islamic State or headed uh, the militias. Uh, and so the average person in Iraq, of course, suffered uh, and of, with no real benefits to the United States uh, besides terrible losses, uh, both in personnel uh, and in destroyed families and in, of course, uh, uh, lots and lots of, uh, of money and prestige. Uh, you know, but again, that, that pales in comparison to what the Iraqis suffered. So by the time I went to Afghanistan, um, and I saw us escalating that war and, and understanding that it was just going to bring about more of the same, that the purposes in the escalation of the war in Afghanistan was so that the Democrats could have a chance to win their war, that the Obama administration could say that they were better at fighting wars, that the Democrats were tougher than the Republicans were. And it reminds me of something a good friend of mine uh, has said over and over again to me, that in Washington, D.C., bruised egos are more important than dead soldiers. That a bruised eagle is something, ego is something that you cannot suffer in Washington, D.C., but dead soldiers certainly don't have that effect. So, um, by, again, so by the time 2009 rolls around, I'm in Afghanistan, uh, it's just I've had enough. I've seen it over and over again, and how long am I going to be basically a sucker for? How long am I going to go along with something I don't agree with? How long am I going to go along with trying to have a noble part in something that was entirely ignoble. You know, how long was I going to try and do my part and do it well and be a good person taking part in something that was worthless, that was without purpose, that was only causing suffering and not bringing a better life to the Afghans and certainly not bringing more security to the United States. So by the time 2009 comes around, I've had enough and I can no longer lie to myself about it. Um, certainly, I had reasons for uh, my career, uh, my own personal reasons, my own expectations of, of uh, careerism, my own issues of personal legacy that I wanted to see through, and that's why I volunteered to go to war three times. Um, but finally, in 2009, I could no longer lie to myself anymore. I could no longer rationalize it or make excuses and I finally could no longer put uh, myself in terms of my own personal advancement, my own careerism, uh, over the top of what I knew to be right, or in the case of, say, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, what I knew to be wrong. So, uh, But it took me a while to get there, as you suggest, and uh, it certainly was not an easy decision, but it's something I've never regretted, never, I've, I've never looked back on, never said I should have done it differently. Um, and uh, I think... Uh, thing for people to understand was that I tried to give it a chance knowing full well that it wasn't going to work. And I think that would be if I was going to impart anything to someone who is listening right now and considering uh, becoming a whistleblower or a truth teller or just stopping their participation 
in our wars overseas, or, or maybe it's a, an act here at home that you, you, you recognize as, uh, as corrupt or as criminal or as without purpose or benefiting only a few or, or, or what have you, that if it hasn't gotten better already, it's probably not going to get better. And what actions are you going to take that are going to stop that? And when, how are you going to stop being complicit? And so in my case, yeah, I certainly wish I had been a lot less complicit and had made my decision not to participate earlier. Um, but, uh, again, none of us have time machines. Um, and so uh, um, I'm just happy that I stopped taking part when I did. Well, there are people, the, the participants in this webcast are climbing steadily, in particular on the on the web, uh, and if anyone there wants to type in a question, uh, please type it in and I will see it turn up. Uh, if you have some sort of technical difficulty with that, uh, please do let us know because we have webcasts planned all the rest of this week, and email me at david at davidswanson.org, that's S-W-A-N-S-O-N, david at davidswanson.org, or tweet us now or later at roots underscore action and we'll get your questions there. But let me ask you a follow-up, Matt, because uh, it, it seems to me there are cases of whistleblowers like uh, Daniel Ellsberg, for example, who are always saying, you know, I should have done it earlier. I should. It was the same old stuff for years and it reached a point yeah. where I where I spoke out, but I should have done it earlier. And then there are others, I think, of people like Anne Wright and Ray McGovern and, and people in Anne Wright's book, uh, which is called Dissent, Voices of Conscience, was all focused on the Iraq War, where it seems to be that something worse happened, that somehow the Iraq War was worse than things that they had participated in before. I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, from everyone's point of view, that would be the case. But, um, yeah. but that seems to be what motivated them to... Uh, to get out, um, wh what do you think is 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 typical? I mean, in, in your experience uh, and in that of whistleblowers you're aware of, is it uh, is it typically a, a change in the person and, and somehow the same the same repetitive destructive policy gets to be too much, or is it or is it usually that that they discover something worse that's going on that they didn't uh, that they didn't know about? I think probably each individual is going to, of course, have his own, his or her own motives and, and reasons and, 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 of course, his or her own experiences. But I, I think what the common thread you see with the whistleblowers and the truth-tellers is uh, that they are all, at the basic level, fundamentally good people who joined uh, the military, the intelligence services, who joined law enforcement, who joined, um, um, you know, the healthcare industry, uh, wherever you, you see whistleblowers and truth-tellers emerging, um, I think the common thread among them is that they are people who believed in something greater than themselves. People, men and women of principles, uh, men and women who have uh, integrity, uh, not because they are better or, or they are better people or that they are blessed with some type of innate supernatural uh, goodness about them, but rather that they believed in the institutions to which they joined. They believed in the civic duties and the civic virtues of government. Uh, they believed in the moral uh, righteousness 
of the healthcare industry, say, if you want to talk about healthcare whistleblowers. Um, and so when they see acts occurring over and over again that cut across the grain that do not, that do not uh, comply or, or are not consistent with the values and the ethos of the institutions which they had joined and served and, and in many cases were willing to sacrifice for or did sacrifice for, I think after a period of time of, of, uh, of trying to do the right thing, of trying to uh, see it through, of trying to take part and, again, having a noble heart themselves, uh, very often they find themselves now in the midst of an institution or in the midst of a war that at its very base, at its very core, its very root, is itself ignoble, is itself uh, uh, you know, immoral or corrupted. And so they can no longer continue to go forward. But you do see uh, these men and women who come forward as whistleblowers and truth tellers try and do things the right way. Uh, almost overwhelmingly, all of us who have done these things have served for a period of time. In my case, it was the third time I went to war. And my experiences in Afghanistan were no different than my experiences in Iraq. And the reason why I resigned in Afghanistan was because of my experiences in Iraq, not because of Afghanistan specifically or per se. It had to do with our total participation in these wars. Um, but I gave, it, I gave it a chance, and that was, of, of course, in hindsight, foolish of me. But I think it comes down to the person and that their belief in the institution, their belief in, um, in, in an integrity and a purpose that goes beyond themselves keeps them tied. And that's why you often see whistleblowers and truth-tellers, um, to, to put it in the most lay terms, I guess, uh, victims of heartbreak, that they uh, uh, experience depression, they experience moral injury, uh, they are prone to anxiety disorders. They have all kinds of psychological and psychiatric issues because something that they really believed in, something at their core, again, something that they were willing to sacrifice for, turned out not to be what it was supposed to be. And so in the case of many of us, we, we try we try and do things right. We try and do things as good men and women, but eventually it comes, we come face-to-face -face with the fact, with the reality that what we are up against is unchangeable, that we have been led to believe in many cases in myths and in narratives uh, that don't hold true in the real world. Uh, or certainly we, we find, it, you know, in my case, uh, truisms and principles of war, that uh, there is no goodness in war, there is no worth in war, there is no nobility in war. Things that I was always taught and always learned uh, but things you dismiss because you believe in your own personal abilities or the abilities of your institution or your country, uh, well, it turns out that those things are always paramount. And then, of course, once you, in my case, say once you engage in war, the corruption permeates through all sides and countries, institutions, individuals become corrupt. And eventually, whistleblowers and truth-tellers cannot handle that any longer and they step forward. I mean, you think most especially right of Dan Ellsberg, uh, and the number of years he put in and the effort in Vietnam and the heartbreak he went through trying to do the right thing, trying to get the government to do the right thing, trying to get the leaders in the Pentagon and the White House to do the right thing in Vietnam and to recognize that it was a losing war and, more importantly, a war without purpose or a war that we were on the wrong side of. Um, and finally, he could only uh, release the Pentagon Papers as a way 
to try and right the injustice he was seeing. I, I think at this point, Matt, uh, Dan would recognize that there is no right way to do a war. There is no right That's side to be on right. in a war. There's no way to, to get it to work uh, properly or morally. Uh, and right. and I, th- I think you share that perspective at this point, as, as do I. Um, I I've, got, uh, I've got a ton of questions, I think. And when I want to get to the topic of how we can support whistleblowers, and, and including maybe whether we need to recognize that they need help with disillusionment and disappointment and regret. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been encouraging people to ask questions, and and I want to get to give you a chance to ask me questions. But we've sure. got a, a question typed in here that is on topic at this point, and this is from uh, Stephen Costas in New York, New York, a nice little town where I was last weekend for the left forum uh-huh. uh, and uh, and by the way if you if you don't if you want to be anonymous in asking your questions uh, sign in anonymously or with a with a made-up name uh, but Stephen asks <laughs> how are you going to prevent recidivism in terrorist offenders without a prison guard or troops in your employ in your vision of a demilitarized approach to counter terrorism uh, I, I would certainly like to take a crack at that, but you want to go first, Matt? Sure. I, I, I think we, you're, you're, we're, we're putting with this type of question, Stephen. Thank you for 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 uh, for, for asking that. Uh, I, I think with this question, we're putting the cart before the horse, so to speak. Uh, what you have is you have you, you don't see examples of recidivism so much that are the issue with terrorism. It's the new recruits and the fact that the greatest recruiting boom for Al-Qaeda after 9-11 were not the Twin Towers coming down or the Pentagon being struck, but rather the invasion of Iraq, uh, rather the establishment on Guantanamo, rather the revelation that the United States tortures. Um, those had more to do with uh, massive amounts of new recruits for Al-Qaeda uh, and then, of course, now for the Islamic State than anything else. So the danger of recidivism is, is very, very small, um, we have seen some uh, 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 some of those who have been released from Guantanamo Bay go back to quote unquote terror groups, however you want to define it. But that number is quite small, and again, that pales in comparison to the number of of, of again uh, recruits for these in organizations that are uh, motivated and uh, uh, bolstered by what they see as U.S. and Western aggression in the Middle East. And I always go back to, uh, you know, understanding who the enemy is, understanding the, the nature of the threat. These are the things I was taught in the Marine Corps. And, and you look at al-Qaeda uh, at, you know, on September 11, 2001, al-Qaeda was only about 200 to 400 people in the whole world. And we know that from sources such as Peter Bergen or Ali uh, Sufan and, and, of course, our own government estimates. And now they're worldwide, and they've been re- replaced, actually, by now the Islamic State. So certainly a military approach hasn't worked. And, and, of course, one last thing I'll add about this, about understanding the causes and what motivates people to join these organizations, as well as our efforts that give uh, these groups, uh, that validate uh, these groups and these organizations' propaganda, uh, and reason for being is you look at the, the martyrdom videos for the 9-11 hijackers 
And what they talk about is consistent with what bin Laden spoke about all throughout the 90s, that that with the 9-11 attacks were an act of war against the United States in response to the U.S. military presence throughout the Middle East, uh, the U.S. military and economic support of dictatorships throughout the Middle East, most especially with the Saudis, uh, the sanctions against Iraq that were occurring that we know killed uh, about a half million people at least, just the sanctions alone, let alone the war since 2003, which we believe now has killed a million people, um, and then, of course, the unqualified support for Israel uh, by the United States over the last several decades. Those are the reasons for why al-Qaeda attacked us, as spoken by al-Qaeda themselves, and so we have to understand that for our actions, you're going to have consequences. And so to be worried about the recidivism or released al-Qaeda or Taliban members going back to join the organization puts it, it, that, that's a very minor concern compared to the overwhelming concern that our actions continue to fuel and motivate recruits into those organizations. Yeah, I agree 100% with what uh, Matthew Ho just said. This is David Swanson. I would just add uh, that a lot of this uh, fear of letting someone out of Guantanamo and having them go back to the so-called battlefield uh, is is actually a misuse of the idea of going back uh, because these are people that there's no evidence were on a battlefield to begin with uh, <laughs> but have been instead had resentment and bitterness and violence instead Instilled in them in Guantanamo, uh, just as these leaders of ISIS who were traumatized and brutalized in U.S. prison camps in Iraq uh, came out uh, and behaved predictably. Uh, that is, it was predictable that terrorism would increase uh, during a war on terrorism, which is, of course, uh, a nonsensical notion in that war is terrorism. Why, this is why Noam Chomsky always says if you want to end terrorism, it's very easy to stop engaging in it. Uh, and, of course, terrorism has steadily increased during the, the so-called war on terrorism. The U.S. government very quickly stopped measuring and reporting on it because of that, uh, but it has. The, the Saudis, you know, there was a bill introduced in the Senate today already in the House uh, to declassify 28 pages of the 9-11 uh, commissions uh, papers that uh, that the former uh, chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Bob Graham, uh, has effectively said reveal that Saudi Arabia, you know, funded this operation of of 9/11. This is this is a nation in Saudi Arabia that is hiring executioners, right, and amputators. If anyone in Nebraska just lost a job when they did away with the death penalty last week, Saudi is hiring. Uh, and so the so the idea and and higher pay too. And the idea that you you know that the U.S. government has an interest in reducing neck slittings and this sort of barbarism is ridiculous. If you look at the government's it supports, and the idea that the the children being blown up and burned to death with U.S. missiles in Yemen from Saudi Arabia is somehow more moral than the people having their necks slit on the street in Saudi Arabia uh, is ridiculous. It's all unjustified killing, and it's counterproductive. If you go to a website I have called War is a Crime, and you type in warisacrime.org slash less safe, you'll find a collection of top and, and for the most part, 
recently retired U.S. officials, generals, directors of national intelligence, openly admitting that they know it's all counterproductive, that it's making us less safe rather than more safe. Uh, you, there was a poll at the end of 2013 by Gallup in 65 nations a question was, which nation is the greatest threat to peace on earth? The United States overwhelmingly the winner in, in most of those countries. Uh, so th this is uh, something that is generating enemies, not eliminating them. Uh, you know, General Stanley McChrystal famously said, you're going to create 10 enemies for every innocent person you kill. I, I think that may be an underestimate, but that, that mm -hmm. is what's happening. Um, and, and so you have, you have an invasion and occupation and devastation of Iraq that laid the groundwork for the, the, the rise of something like ISIS, just as U.S. behavior in Afghanistan created these jihadists uh, in the first place, just as uh, the United States behavior uh, uh, in that whole region has been creating, has been doing away with secular governments and creating these uh, religious fanatics for decades now. Uh, I, I think the approach you take and that we begin to lay out in a, in a book on this we've just published at worldbeyondwar.org uh, is not better killing and better prisons and better torture and abuse. And, and it, you know, it was Abu Ghraib that was the greatest recruitment for anti-U.S. Uh, actions, violent and nonviolent. But now it's, it's, you know, it's the bombing of ISIS. ISIS put out a 60-minute movie saying, please bomb us. We want to be seen as the leading opponents of the United States because it has made itself so hated. And the United States obliged and went ahead with bombing ISIS and ISIS recruitment soared. The, the approach you should take, first of all, is to disarm a region that is fundamentally armed, overwhelmingly armed by the United States, at least 80% of the weapons in the Middle East, not counting the U.S. own weapons, are from the United <laughs> States. You know, it's, it's as if you did like a Stanford prison experiment where you, you, know, you get some of your students to be the guards and some of your students to be the prisoners and wait and see if anyone acts bad. But whenever there's a Muslim student, you give them an automatic weapon. You know, and then you conclude that, well, oh, it turns out Muslims are more violent. The Middle East is armed by the United States. The United States could put in place an arms embargo that would be overwhelmingly effective just with the United States on board. And it has incredible power over these dictatorships. It's arming to get them on board. Disarm the place. Get into negotiations with every relevant country. Get ceasefires. Get diplomatic uh, negotiations underway. And engage in real aid. I mean, you could, you could multiply U.S. foreign aid ten times. For a, for a fraction of what is spent on making things worse. Uh, and the, the other bit that I think uh, I might add to what Matt said so well about the motivations of, uh, of so-called terrorists, that is, of small-time war makers uh, on the other side, uh, is that each and every one of them says they are motivated by the United States arming and supporting the crimes of Israel. Uh, you know, which, like everything else that motivates them, is no justification whatsoever. But mm -hmm. it is an explanation. It is an answer to the, to the so-called mystery of why they hate us. The United States gives free weapons, tons of them, billions of dollars every year to Israel, money to buy U.S. weapons, uh, and now is talking about 
putting through the State Department with Israel. I mean, this is not a treaty, not ratified by the Senate, not debated by the public, God knows, but a memo uh, negotiating, you know, 10 more years of giving Israel yet more, 50% more weapons than before. Uh, you know, that is easy to stop. You simply stop doing it. Um, so that, that would be my take. Uh, you want to add anything to that, Matthew? But no, no, I, 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 excellent, David. I, I think that the, the key things about this, that, that he, as you were saying, is that within the U.S. government, they know all this. You know, uh, General Petraeus, uh, in testimony to Congress, about four or five years ago, I, I believe, testified that the U.S. support for Israel is causing the U.S. more harm than good. That, our, uh, as we've discussed, the, our unqualified support for, this, for Israel's policies against the Palestinians, its policies in the region, our massive amounts of military aid are causing the U.S. harm. Um, and, of course, once that was uttered out of his mouth, he had to retract it uh, and, you know, made all kinds of excuses for it. Um, but these kinds of things are known. Um, you know, going back to understanding the root causes of these groups with al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, uh, you know, I mean, you look, I mean, both Secretary Gates, Bob, Ga- you know, Bob Gates, who was Secretary of Defense and uh, head of the CIA, and Zinu Brzezinski, who was a National Security Advisor in the late 70s, both of them in their memoirs talk about arming the Afghan Mujahideen, the Afghan rebels, six months to a year before the Soviet Union even entered into Afghanistan in 1979. Uh, and so you, we have to understand that our actions are going to have consequences. And within the U.S. government, as Dan Ellsberg uh, you know, showed in the Pentagon Papers or as the documents I would see when I was working uh, both the State Department and the Department of Defense in terms of what was the Iraqi insurgency actually like. Well, we knew that the Iraqi insurgency was 95, 96% Iraqi. It was not foreign fighters. It was not people, these crazy terrorists coming from other countries to ruin the democracy that we were building in Iraq. It was the actual Iraqis themselves who were fighting us because they didn't want us there. I mean, we had all that information. We had all that data. We knew that. I remember reading the reports. We would capture those, those several thousand, uh, you know, men who would come to fight us from other countries, we would capture some of them, and we'd ask them, why did you come? And, and as, as David, as you said, you know, because of Abu Ghraib. They came to defend their people. They came to defend their faith. They became to defend uh, against uh, American invasion and occupation. And, and this is not the words of, of you know, two uh, hippie peaceniks, you know, David and I on, on the line right now, but this is actually what the United States government understands internally, but of course refuses to admit publicly and then even more uh, concerningly totally ignores uh, in its policy making. And I, I, I do think, I, I, I agree uh, completely, David, with your assessment for what needs to be done in the Middle East. Uh, it's very simple. When, you know, the house is on fire, stop adding fuel to the fire. Uh, and it's exactly the case. Stop trying to pick winners and losers in these conflicts. Stop playing one sect or one religion or one ethnicity off against another sect, ethnicity, or religion in some attempt to have a geopolitical masterstroke like you're playing a game of risk uh, because that's the way the people in Washington, D.C. see that region. And what is so sad and so... Uh, I think most people on this call recognize as well, so, so criminal is that most of the people in Washington, D.C. who are making these decisions have very little contact or understanding about the sufferings that 
these decisions, these policies are causing, um, and uh, just want to, again, play this real-life game of risk, try and play one group against the other, arm one group against another group, uh, fund this dictator against these uh, separatists, uh, as if it's just some type of game they can play to try and make the map a certain color or look a certain way. But the reality is is that millions of people are suffering uh, right now because of those policies. Yeah, I'm afraid it's even that cynical when something's done right, like peace with Iran, <laughs> so that Iran will be on the right side in other wars. But um, I... I I want to encourage people to uh, to ask questions. Uh, almost everybody is on the webcast. If you're not, you can tweet questions to roots underscore action. Uh, if you're on the webcast, you can type in questions, uh, and we know it's working because Stephen Costas uh, from New York, New York, did it. Uh, so type in your questions. Uh, in the meantime, do you do you want to maybe ask a question, Matt? Yeah, absolutely, Dave. Because you know, one of the things I've known you for all these years now, and uh, you know, I have some specific questions, of course, about what uh, Roots Action and Stand Up for Truth is doing uh, with regards to some specific whistleblowers. But, but I want to ask a personal question because I've never had the chance to ask you how you came to be involved in this line of work, how you uh, just have decided to spend your life. Uh, you're obviously, you know, right? I mean, uh, an intelligent, sharp guy. You went to UVA. You know, I'm sure you could have gone to business school or, or done what, law school or done whatever you wanted to do and be making a whole heck of a lot more, more money than as a, a peace activist. Uh, so how did you get to this point? How did you become uh, one of the most important leaders, not just in the United States, but around the world for peace efforts? Uh, and if folks don't know, David's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, which, you know, so it's a delight to be able to say that. Uh, but also, too, and then on, after that, David, if you could also, too, for those who are listening who want to be more involved, want to become the next generation as David Swanson, what advice do you have for them? Because we need wow. more people. We need, we need good, strong leadership throughout this country and throughout this world. And so how does somebody emulate what you do, what you've done? Well, first of all, I think it's a sad commentary on the on the peace movement and uh, and uh, a wild exaggeration, <laughs> nonetheless. Uh, and uh, and of course, being nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize is a completely different thing from from winning one, which uh, <laughs> of course can can be a good or a bad thing at this point in the history of that discredited prize. But uh, I, I, you know, I did do a master's in philosophy at, at UVA, and and they did have some classes that were sort of cross taught with the business school uh, and, and uh, you know it disgusted me you know I mean it, classes in you know environmental ethics and business where there's where this sort of mix of how do you maximize profit uh, at the expense of everyone and everything else and yet pretend to have some sort of superficial gloss of morality you can uh, paint over that uh, and it just disgusted me uh, and every time I've had a job where uh, you know, I was just trying to make a buck, or I was writing for a newspaper, but there was an editor that wanted a certain corporate slant on it. Or, you know, I had a job with writing uh, for a couple of newsletters, one for labor unions and one for so-called human resource managers, the very idea of which disgusts me. And I, and you know, and I quit with no 
job prospects because I couldn't do that, you know, 50% of my job. I couldn't write the same story as how to build your union and how to screw your workers. Uh, and the fact <laughs> that I wouldn't write the how to screw your workers slant, uh, you know, resulted in my being accused of not being objective. Uh, and and so, you know, I found my way into activist work because I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't do a job where I had a boss telling me what to do because I'm incapable of that. Uh, and I couldn't do a job where I wasn't, you know, trying to make the world a better place uh, because I would, you know, quit and go try to make the world a better place. So, you know, if there had been a billion-dollar marketing campaign to recruit peace activists, if we were spending more on recruiting each peace activist than we're spending on educating a, a, a child, as we are doing in this country in terms of recruiting members of the military uh, compared to educating a child, uh, well, you know, we'd have peace tomorrow. I mean, we would have a peace movement the size of, of anything you've ever seen in, in, in the history of the world, and uh, and it would win, you know, but there's no such thing. There's no billboards. There's yeah. no video games. There's no advertising campaign. There's no Hollywood movies made at the direction of the CIA, uh, you know, it, it, for <laughs> for peace. It's all for war, right? You know, the the, yeah. the 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 movie about the North Korean dictator. The movie about you know zero dark 30 the you know torture works all of this nonsense uh, it's it's all on the side of recruitment for war the generals in uniform going into the kindergartens i mean all this illegal immoral recruitment of minors uh we don't have that on the side of peace so i had to sort of stumble in middle aged uh into peace activism uh, when I found it, uh, you know, and I, I didn't have some road to Damascus moment where I switched from being for war to being for peace. You know, I was never for war. I, I, I grew up in a society that, who, that, whose biggest project is war, uh, and yet I was raised like any child uh, to to believe that you should settle your differences with words, not fists, and you shouldn't hit people and hurt people and kill people and so forth. And that was a contradiction in my mind, as it is for a lot of children, I, I think. And, you know, I, and I was, of course, taught a million things as a child that were nonsense in my mind. I was taught religion and the facts looked to me like atheism, so I grew up an atheist. But there wasn't any, mm -hmm. you know, moment in my in my youth or middle age when that happened. That was just, you know, how I grew up, and that's how I grew up with that, with regard to war. Uh, I just mm -hmm. never thought it fit with uh, <laughs> with you ought to settle your differences civilly, uh, and, <laughs> and so. Uh, and so I eventually found my way into peace activism and, uh, and other sorts of activism. Um, um, and if we have time, I want to talk about uh, some of what Roots Action, where I'm now working a lot of my time uh, at RootsAction.org, has been doing for for some whistleblowers. But uh, let me see uh, let me see what this question is coming in here again from Stephen Costas. We have a lot of people on this webcast, and only one is asking questions. Um, uh, he's referring to a book, uh, your book, and I don't know if this is one of my books or uh, a book by you, Matt, but... Uh, yeah, I don't have a book, so it's your book. <laughs> it must be one of my books. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I'm I mean, really not sure what the question it, 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 is. It's more of a yeah. statement. Sorry, Matt, go ahead. Uh, I was, I was going to say, and there are folks who are, who are uh, you know, who are online with us and listening. Uh, if you haven't read David's books, they're really, really great, and they're really important. 
David has a, a, a great uh, a voice, a great uh, form of narrative, uh, but he also, too, is just able to assemble so many things in terms of why our movement, why the peace movement makes sense and why it's grounded in history and, and why this is, there are practical reasons for peace. It's just not because we're nice people and because we have morals or because of, 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 our, of the way our parents brought us up or what have you. But David's books always do an excellent job of explaining why peace, why this is the right alternative, why there is no such thing as a good war or a necessary war. And so if you haven't uh, read any of his books, uh, and you're interested in you're getting involved now in the peace movement, uh, or if you've been involved for a long time, uh, his, his works are really essential to understanding the core and the thrust of our movement and what we're trying to accomplish. And they're great tools to proselytize with, right? Because that's what we need. We need more people in this movement. We need more people amongst not just more whistleblowers and truth tellers, but we need just more people who are just fed up with uh, endless wars overseas, uh, militarized policies both overseas and at home, and deteriorating, deteriorating standard of living, uh, injustices, uh, and really just upside-down priorities that we have. Um, and so it, 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 if you've not read one of his books, uh, like I said, I'm really giving a pitch here for it, but I do so it with the most sincerity because they are very, very helpful. They helped me five years ago when I was coming into the peace movement. His books helped me a great deal in understanding what this is all about and what's being trying to accomplish and what has worked and why it should work again. Well, the, the transcript of this call is now going on the back cover of my next book. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the other thing about books, you know, is, is, you know, and not just mine, but books in general, is that they are where a lot of the most important investigative reporting is now published. Uh, this report, you know, there are these endless stories in the news about James Risen, New York Times reporter, bravely refusing to reveal a source and threatened with prison and facing subpoena. Uh, but what he reported was never and has never shown up in the New York Times. Uh, and what he reported that the government was upset about uh, was not mentioned or even hinted at in most of the stories about his brave fight uh, against those subpoenas. Uh, and, and so it was important for Root's action to not only defend James Risen, and we really organized a huge coalition of groups uh, and VIPs to defend him. It really made a difference and ultimately resulted in the Justice Department dropping its efforts to subpoena him, uh, but also to educate people about what it was that he reported, which was, of course, that the CIA uh, had given plans for the key components of a nuclear bomb to the government of Iran uh, and, you know, had made up this story about how they were, they were intent intentionally flawed plans that were going to somehow trick the ignorant uh, Iranian scientists into not spotting the flaws, even though their own team of scientists spotted the flaws and, cre and created the parts based on the plans. Uh, and even though, uh, as James Risen reported in his book, uh, which got everybody so upset, 
their former Russian nuclear scientist acting as their agent to, to, to deliver these plans as if he had them from Russian, even though they're in English. Uh, he immediately <laughs> spotted the flaws, which threw them into a fit, but they went ahead with it anyway. Uh, and they went ahead with it anyway, of course, because the purpose was not to slow down a, a, a nuclear operation in Iran that their best intelligence told them didn't exist. This was in the year 2000. Uh, but to plant evidence on Iran. Uh, and, and the CIA, in the trial of Jeffrey Sterling, who was the alleged source uh, of James Risen, uh, who probably had several sources and there was no evidence presented in the trial that, that Sterling was among them, uh, he was convicted nonetheless and is probably uh, going to prison very soon. Uh, he's been sentenced to three and a half years, and the government wanted... 19 to 2024 20, or something. Uh, the the uh, what came out in the trial, you know, the CIA revealed at the trial uh, in a in a memo with, that had some words blacked out, but not enough of them, uh, was that they immediately then asked the same guy if he would do the same thing with Iraq. So, and whether they followed through, who knows? Nobody's asked. Mm -hmm. You know, Jeffrey Sterling went to Congress, did what Edward Snowden is told you're supposed to do, went through proper channels, went to Congress, uh, and Congress did nothing, unless perhaps they leaked it to James Risen. Uh, and he went to a Congress member and asked for help and was told, flee the country. That was the advice from his congressman, mm -hmm. flee the country. Uh, it, it, this, you know, uh, as far as anyone knew, an innocent man trying to go through proper channels, trying to expose wrongdoing, uh, you know, proliferation of nuclear weapons, open admission in court that they knew they were risking proliferating nuclear weapons by spreading plans and possibly parts around uh, <laughs> to Iran and Iraq. And Condoleezza Rice goes to the New York Times and says, don't print this story, and they say, yes, ma'am. Right, and 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 then the CIA comes up with claims that Iraq has nuclear weapons plans dug up in the backyard of a scientist, and miraculously, in English, these you know supposedly Iraqi German plans. So this this was an operation of planting evidence, you know, just just like the aluminum tubes, just like the uranium purchases in Niger. Uh, and this was, you know, revealed, not labeled as such by James Risen, but revealed by James Risen in a book. Uh, and, you know, people who are, are willing to go to someone like James Risen with their story uh, now know there is a greater risk that they're going to end up in prison for it. Yes, uh, I mean, it, it's just, you know, and, and this is not, I, I, I think... I, I, I think what, what, what a lot of people, when they hear this, they, they, they hear this is, uh, they, they, they hear about the CIA's operation to, to plan evidence. Uh, they say, well, that was a one-off thing, or that was, uh, you know, a case where it was just really out of hand, or that this is just an exaggerated case of people trying to do the right thing using the methods they have. It, but the, the, the reality is, is that we have an intelligence service the CIA, and we have a government that fully supports them through all kinds of, uh, of resources, uh, 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 you know, the most pernicious, of course, being this notion that what they are doing is somehow uh, akin to supporting freedom and liberty here at home and overseas. But, you know, I mean, if, if there's one thing, uh, you know, I, I've learned over my time in the government and then as well as, as, as my time since is that everything that occurs has occurred before and that there is nothing new under the sun to use a, you know, a, a very true but, but worn cliche. 
And if in an in example I always cite uh, to not give the government the benefit of the doubt, to not give the United States officials the benefit of the doubt, to not think that we cannot be like other nations, we cannot be like other people in history and plant evidence to cause wars. And I always cite uh, Operation Northwoods. Uh, and if you're not familiar with Operation Northwoods, uh, please Google it. Uh, wonderful little Wikipedia entry on it. But when you do, and, and if you are familiar with it, you know that in 1962, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff actually signed off on a plan and sent it to the Secretary of Defense. This the senior American general signs off on a plan in 1962 to conduct hijackings and bombings in the United States in order to blame the Cubans so that we would have a reason to attack Cuba. I mean, this was, was done by the, you know, and, and, and thankfully the Secretary of Defense said no, but this wasn't something that was done by some crackpot staffer, you know, some major who then got fired the next year. This was actually a plan that our most senior American general thought was a good and worthwhile plan and submitted it to the Secretary of Defense. And, of course, this was, you know, over 50 years ago. But, you know, you look at that, you look at what came out of the church committee hearings, right, from the 1970s, our understanding of COINTELPRO, uh, you know, the, the use of the FBI basically as a, uh, a, a repressive uh, uh, force of, of surveillance against all types of Americans, uh, you know, one of the most striking things to me, David, about the Church Committee report is that it found that every American president, every American president since the FBI was created, you know, it was originally the Bureau of Investigation in the 1920s, since it was created, every American president has used the FBI for his own political purposes. And, you know, that was clearly laid out in the Church Committee report in the 1970s, and we have no doubt that the same has occurred. So when you hear these things, you know, you see the Jeffrey Sterling trial, you see what happened with James Rising, and you see what they're exposing, this notion that we're going to plant evidence in Iran to help them manufacture a bomb that they don't have already so that either justification for us to go to war or maybe the bomb will malfunction or whatever their purposes were, and you want to dismiss it as a one-off or an exaggeration, just recall that in history, throughout history, our American history, our government has done these things over and over and over again. They dress it up, they raise the flag, they cite freedom and liberty, uh, but the reality is is that in so many ways our government and the people who populate it are no different than the governments and the people of other nations who come before us who have been corrupt, criminal, and uh, despotic. You know, Cheney proposed in a in a meeting uh, getting U.S. troops to shoot at U.S. troops uh, in the Persian Gulf, pretending to be Iranians shooting at U.S. troops uh, <laughs> in order to to get violence going with Iran, and they decided against that plan. Bush proposed in the White House to Tony Blair uh, to fly U.S. planes painted with U.N. colors uh, low over Iraq and try to get them shot at to start a war with Iraq. And Bush and Blair walked out. 
to a press conference at which they told the reporters present that they were doing everything they could to avoid war and war would be a last resort. Uh, I don't think any of those reporters have ever taken offense at that. Uh, yeah. the, the, the lies about uh, you know, the assassinations by Iran, the actual assassinations of Iranians, the, the lies about Iraq and the surge and the surge in Afghanistan that you're uh, so familiar with that Obama parroted uh, from Bush, the, the lies about uh, the imminent threat in Benghazi and the imminent threat on the mountaintop and the Khorasan group that didn't exist and the chemical weapons in Syria and the, and the targeting of the drones and the, and the Russian invasions of Ukraine that were happening like once a month for a while there and the Russian shooting down of airplanes in, in, over Ukraine. I mean, it's on and on and on. The, the lies. Uh, and uh, people think there was just this one time when George W. Bush or maybe it was Lyndon Johnson told a lie, but it's you know every single war. I, I think I'm going to republish uh, a book I did five years ago called War is a Lie and add in the most mm-hmm. recent five years of the major lies. Yeah. But um, we, uh, we've, got, uh, we've got about... Uh, Ten minutes left, and I've got a, a question that's like a page long from uh, from a new person that I'm going to read uh, and then ask you in a in a minute, Matt. But oh no, it's okay. not that long actually. I needed to uh, to scroll up, I guess. Um, and for over thirty years, uh, well, actually, maybe I've. Nope. I've lost most of oh or maybe it's it's repeated twice there it is it is enormously long matt what i wanted to ask you with not that much time left on the call was what do you think people can most actively usefully do uh to encourage whistleblowers obviously all your former colleagues haven't followed you uh to to support whistleblowers to provide uh, a, a means of letting them know that we're going to spread around the info they put out and we're going to help them uh, when they when they take this sort of step. Yeah, I, I think there's a large there's a lot of things people can do, and uh, some of it is the, the very you know mundane but very necessary supporting organizations like Government Accountability Project. Uh, those are the people who provide the lawyers uh, for whistleblowers, uh, who provide the lawyers for men like Tom Drake or Peter Van Buren or uh, Edward Snowden. Um, you mean so it's, it's it's very mundane, and you know I hate to be you know with with with, with the cup out, but that's that's something that's very important because what whistleblowers are up against are the full might of the American government, or in the case of a corporate whistleblower, right, the full might of uh, of healthcare company or a tobacco company. Uh, so, but then also too, there's public things you can do. Uh, certainly, of course, being a, 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 a hawk with the media and contacting the media and let them know that you want more coverage of these issues, as well as writing to them and informing them when you see content that is not not just true, but not thorough. It doesn't prevent the all sides. And one of the things I get very uh, upset with with Chelsea Manning's, uh, uh, you know, uh, prison term and his and her conviction, is that it gets it never gets cited that the United States government in her trial could not st- cite one example of somebody being harmed because of her revelations. But throughout 
her trial and any time her, her, her case is brought up now, it's often said that she put lives in danger or she, she hurt American security. But during her trial, the United States government was unable in a court of law to demonstrate any of that. So make sure the thoroughness is being there. Uh, certainly, of course, through the different organizations, different whistleblower organizations, uh, organizations that are helping whistleblowers like Roots Action and Stand Up for Truth, you can reach out and, and, and offer assistance um, just by thanking them, just by letting them know that you are supporting them. And you can do that, of course, on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, but those public pronouncements are very helpful. And then finally, I'll say, because, you know, there are a lot of things, but, but you know, in addition to contacting your elected officials, in addition to contacting your members of Congress and letting them know, uh, you know, one of the most effective things to do is try and make an appointment. Get yourself together a group, a local group, and, and, and try and make an appointment with your member of Congress next time they are back in the district. But also, too, um, Excuse me. The, 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 you know, talk to your friends. Educate people. Uh, I have a feeling that most of the folks who are on this call with us tonight are already on our side, right? You're, you're, you're dialing into a call with Matt Ho and David Swanson. You either like what we say or you really hate us. I mean, I don't think you got a lot of fence sitters on this call. But, uh, um, you know, but bring other people into the fold. Educate people. Let people know and try and, try and help us build this base uh, of people who are tired of seeing our society come undone while the wars wage overseas, while we spend $615 billion a year just on the defense budget, not on everything related to national security, just on the defense budget. Uh, and meanwhile, our schools deteriorate, our cities fall apart. Uh, you know, certainly we have the world's largest prison population, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so in that sense, try and bring more people into the fold with us. Uh, you know, proselytize this to your, uh, your, 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 your friends and your family. Very well said, Matt. And one thing you can spread around uh, is uh, StandUpForTruth.org, where you will see the schedule of the webcasts and conference calls that are planned uh, for the next five days. There's a there's actually a great question we're not going to have time to try to ask, and it's very lengthy. Is from a woman named Kathleen Cole or Kathy Cole from Great River, New York, who is apparently a a whistleblower herself and trying to be a whistleblower and struggling with it. Uh, and I encourage you to to contact uh, the organizations Matt was talking about, such as Government Accountability Project, uh, but contact me by email, please, at david at davidswanson.org, uh, and we will see what, if anything, we can do to be helpful. Um, I also should note that this call and the upcoming calls, uh, webcasts, uh, are created and sponsored by rootsaction.org and exposefacts.org, uh, both of which operate on a shoestring budget and can use your support, uh, financial and otherwise, and you can find them at those websites, rootsaction.org and exposefacts.org. Uh, tomorrow night... Trevor Tim, uh, journalist, activist, lawyer, and investigative journalist Tim Shorek are going to be on a webcast, same time and place, 9 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow. Uh, the next day, uh, Sam Husseini from Institute of Public Accuracy and author and law professor, great books, Marjorie Cohn, uh, same time. 
And the following day, there will be a doubleheader at 8 p.m. Uh, NSA whistleblowers William Binney and Kirk Wiebe. And at 9 p.m., Roots Action's co-founder Jeff Cohen and professor, author Robert McChesney, one of our experts on media and media reform in this country. Uh, and finally, on Saturday, 5 p.m. Eastern, Kevin Gostola uh, of Firedog Lake and elsewhere, journalist and EPA whistleblower Marsha Coleman Adebayo, who has a wonderful story and has done incredible activism around whistleblowing, uh, will be on that final webcast in this series. Um, and I want to I thank all of you who've been on here. Somehow the list of participants has been steadily growing through the course of this uh, webcast. I don't know if you've been recruiting your friends or people have just been showing up late, <laughs> uh, but thank you. Uh, and thank you to Matt Ho, who is terrific and was a great way uh, to to start this series of webcasts. Uh, thank you very, very much, Matt. We are, uh, we are out of time, uh, but thank you all for participating. All right. Thanks, David. Thank you.